Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, April 3rd by our lead pastor, Rod Heppel. Today is the 19th message in our sermon series entitled, Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. For more information about our church, check out sardisfellowship.com. I love the grand finale at an event. You know, like if you're at a concert and it's the encore, or if it's Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals, or if it's watching fireworks and it comes to the very end and they've saved the best for the last, right? You know what that's like. The grand finale is the thing that helps you create the moment that you will never forget. And as we've been going with the Apostle Paul through his missionary journeys and with his companions, we've been looking at how this has been escalating in intensity with all of these trials and speeches that he's given to defend his faith. It's the crescendo today of the argument and the opportunity that Paul has for sharing his faith and for whom he's going to share it to, because he has this incredible audience before him. So last week we were in Jerusalem and we kind of looked at four different um, scenes, as we called it, the arrest of the Apostle Paul, falsely accused by the Jewish people, and then he stood before this Roman commander named Claudius and gave his defense, and then he was taken and put in front of the Sanhedrin, and he tried to give his defense, but as soon as he mentioned the resurrection, uh, a dispute broke out, and he never really got to share his heart about Christ. And then finally, Claudius, realizing that there was a plot that was going to take the life of the Apostle Paul, decided to transfer him to Caesarea to get him out of there. And so he takes him to the governor of the region named Felix. And he's on the Mediterranean Sea in the city of Caesarea, about 121 kilometers away. 121 kilometers is exactly the distance from Chilliwack to the Horseshoe Bay Ferry Terminal. And at $1.89 a liter, it's going to cost you about 40 bucks to get there and back. But of course, Paul didn't have to pay for gas. Fortunately, he was on a horse, which at $15 a bale, it's going to cost him about $10.50 for that trip. Claudius is the Roman commander who's been put in charge of the city of Jerusalem in that region, and he's there for one purpose, keep the peace. And he wasn't able to do that. That's why he had to get the Apostle Paul out of there, because things were so disorderly. But what he knew is that Paul really wasn't guilty of breaking any Roman law, but he needed to try him further. This is how Claudius uh, summarized it. In writing a letter to the governor, he says, I found that the accusation against Paul had to do with questions about their Jewish law, but there was no charge against them that deserved death or imprisonment. So today what we're going to see is that Paul has this opportunity to speak to two Roman governors, a king and his wife, some high-ranking military officials, and the leading nobility of the city of Caesarea. This audience he will never have again, and that's why I'm calling it the grand finale of Paul's speeches. In these three chapters of Acts 24 to 26, Paul is actually fulfilling the words that Jesus spoke back in his gospel in Matthew 10, where he said this, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what you say or how you say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will, be, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Now, that sounds like a pretty rough missions trip, doesn't it? I mean, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Wolves have teeth. Sheep do not. You have no defense. Therefore, he says, be smart. Be smart like a snake. Be gentle as a dove. 
Because you will be falsely accused. You will be beaten and flogged. You'll stand before big and important people and also small people sharing the same gospel message. Nothing changes. But don't worry about all that because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak when you need them. So that's both the prediction of Jesus and the promise of Jesus. Do not worry about what you are to say or how to say it because at that time it will be given to you. For it won't be you speaking, but the Holy Spirit through you. And this is exactly what we're going to see today in these four chapters. And I'm calling them scenes again. There's three different settings or three different scenes. They're court-type environments, one before Governor Felix, one before Governor Festus, and one before King Agrippa and his wife, Bernice. So let's look at the first one. But first of all, why is Paul on trial? Like, why, why is everyone so upset with the Apostle Paul? So let's just get the big picture here for a second. The issues for the Jews happened to do with two things predominantly. One, that the gospel message that Paul preached of salvation was for the Gentiles. And they seem to really get upset over that point. And secondly, when Paul is speaking about Jesus and this gospel, he's speaking of him as the resurrected Jesus, that he's come back to life, that he therefore is the Messiah of Israel. And they uh, take issue with that. The Roman leaders take issue with the fact that they're trying to ascertain whether or not Paul has actually done anything illegal in Roman law. Has he really created this disruption? Uh, there's this thing called Pax Romana. Maybe you've heard about that. It's called the Peace of Rome. And it was a big deal. One of the things for about a 200-year period in Roman Empire was their ability to create peace between the various people groups. Had Paul broken Roman law to be a disruption to the Peace of Rome? And secondly, they had on their minds, these Roman leaders, how do we appease the Jewish leaders? Because they're the ones that we need to make sure we keep in good relationship with if we're ever going to govern Israel and have peace. And so these were the issues on the minds of the Romans, a separate agenda completely from the Jewish people. Now, I love a good story. And in my opinion, the book of Acts is a great story. I mean, it has all those elements of intrigue, right? You don't really know where the story's going, how it's going to unfold, where things are going to land. I love it when there's a twist in the plot, where there's, you know, a situation that's just ironic. And we're going to see that in today's uh, lesson. We've already seen it. I mean, two weeks ago, we were in Ephesus, and you have this incredible riot that takes place, and people are in this Colosseum, and they're... I mean, if they could get their hands on Paul, they would tear him apart. And they're, they're shouting for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then this city clerk gets up and calms them all down. And he says, listen, Paul's not guilty of anything. But you all, you're almost in contempt of court because you haven't gone through the courts. You've, you've created the riot. And so, you know, the whole thing twists on them. And Demetrius and his guys are, are called out and Paul is set free. He's vindicated. And then last week, we have Claudius who has to rescue Paul twice. Twice at the hands of the Jewish people who are ready to tear him apart limb from limb, it says in our story last week. And then in the middle of the night, he sneaks Paul off because he hears that there's going to be a plot to take his life. And so he gets all these soldiers together and he hauls Paul, hauls Paul away to Caesarea. So you have all of these twists in the story that make it interesting. And today's story, although it doesn't sound that interesting, three trials, how could that be interesting? They're very intriguing. What happens here? And there's opportunity that God gives that's just amazing. So uh, buckle up. Let's go through these. We're covering three chapters again this week in Acts. So the first one, the first scene, Paul before Governor Felix. Our story opens with Paul being brought before Governor Felix, 
who has called Ananias, and, and, who is the high priest, and also the elders from Jerusalem to come to Caesarea to bring their accusation before the governor Felix. Now, this is a Roman court. This is no longer in that Jerusalem Jewish context of the Sanhedrin and that council. No, this is now a Roman court. But this time the Jews have hired a professional orator to do their work, to do their presenting. He's a lawyer. His name is Tertullus. I mean, this is like a person who hires a high-powered lawyer from Vancouver to come out to the Chilliwack court system and give their verdict or to represent them in, on their case. But Paul is representing himself. He doesn't need a high-powered lawyer to speak for him because he knows his story. He knows the gospel. He knows the truth. And he's able to stand for himself. But he also knows that he doesn't stand in his own strength. Paul knows the verses of Jesus that I just read, that it is the Holy Spirit who empowers him and gives him the words to speak at the moment he needs it. Now, Tertullus is really a schmooze. I mean, he lays it on really thick, stroking the eagle of this, eagle of this governor Felix uh, before he even presents his case. And so he, he kind of goes on like this, you know, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. He's talking to the governor. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. You know, you just sense him going on and on. Like, give it a rest, Tertullius. You know, I once heard an introduction that a seminary president gave to a leading pastor in our denomination. And he went on and on and on about this person and their accolades and stuff like that. And then he got up to preach. And as soon as he got up to preach, he, he said, well, now I know what a stack of pancakes feels like all smothered in syrup. And that's what's happening here. Tertullus is smothering Felix in syrup. And then he goes on for his case. We have found this man, Paul, to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to des desecrate the temple. So we seized him. Now the other Jews that were there joined in this occasion, asserting that these things were true. You know, and then Felix, you know, brings Tertullus to an end, and he turns over to Paul and says, okay, Paul, what's your defense? And Paul simply lays out his defense of these accusations, that they're unfounded. They cannot be proven. In fact, the opposite is true. He says to them, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. That's all I was doing. I was just going there to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. I was there peacefully, just going to worship my God. And they cannot prove to you the charges that they are now making against me. So what's the verdict? Round one, it goes to the Apostle Paul. Felix is not convinced by the high-powered lawyer who comes and presents these charges against Paul that he has actually broken any of the Roman laws. So Paul, he wins round one. You know, I love a good underdog story, and I kind of have a sense that's just what, what went on there. Uh, Paul was the underdog. This other guy was his professional orator. I remember once a story about my dad who got taken to court, and it was over this uh, story about peddling potatoes, of all things. My dad and his, uh, my uncle, they were potato farmers, and uh, they had been selling potatoes to roadside stands for years and years, and then all of a sudden a rule came in that you couldn't do that. The BC Coast Vegetable Marketing Board was saying to the farmers, you can't take it there anymore, it's illegal. And so there's quite a tug-of-war going on over this issue of whether or not you could sell your potatoes directly from your farm to roadside stands. And my dad and my uncle were carrying on doing this, and one day my dad gets caught, and so he goes to court. The BC Coast organization had hired three lawyers to represent their case, and my dad was representing himself. 
The judge asked my dad, do you have legal counsel, Mr. Heppel? To which he said, no. He said, do you plan to represent yourself here today? He said, yes, I do, Your Honor. Very well, let's proceed. Within 15 minutes, the judge got so mad at the three lawyers that he almost threw the case out of court. He said, I'm giving you clowns 20 minutes to get your act together and come back to me and tell me your case as to why this man is guilty. Mr. Heppel has no lawyer, but he's defended his position very well. I'll give you 20 minutes to put your story together. At the close of the case, my dad was found guilty based on the fact that he did know that it was illegal. When the judge gave his guilty verdict, he said, Mr. Heppel, I find you guilty and I find you a charge of $100, a whopping fine. And then he says to my dad, how would you like to pay that? To which my dad said, could I pay with potatoes, your honor? To which he laughed and said, no, not today, Mr. Heppel. When Tony Parsons, who was a news anchor for BCTV, which is now Global News, closed off this segment, he said, as for these potatoes, they are under arrest. You know, everyone loves an underdog story, and Governor Felix was not moved at all by this high-powered lawyer to present his case. He did not see Paul as guilty. Paul just presented the facts. Paul could speak for himself, empowered by the Spirit of God. In fact, what Paul had to say intrigued Felix because he goes on to say this. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish woman. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Pretty specific. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Proceus Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. You know, I just find this so interesting, so true to human nature, that we want the gospel when it's convenient. We want the gospel on our terms. You know, Paul, you're hitting a little too close to home when you're speaking about judgment and you're speaking about righteousness, self-control. You know what, Paul? I don't want to hear about this sin problem that you're saying that we all have here. When I'm ready to hear it, I will ask for you again. You know, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation, that we shouldn't harden our hearts, that we shouldn't resist the gospel, that we need to hear it, understand it, believe it, and declare it to be true in our own lives. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Paul says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. This is a quote, by the way. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, and now is the day of salvation. And so Paul is taking this Old Testament quote, and he's saying, listen, today is the day of salvation. But Felix's true colors come out here. They come shining through. The gospel's inconvenient for him, and he's really actually hoping that he can make some money off of this. And therefore, he calls for Paul often, but he's just hoping for some money, a bribe. Plus, when his time is done in office, he decides to leave Paul there as a favor to the Jews, caring more about his reputation than he does about justice. So that closes off the first scene. The second scene is Paul before Governor Festus, and he comes into power right on the heels of Felix, and he seems to be a little bit more noble than Felix in that he takes seriously the, the matter of the Apostle Paul. He's been in prison for two years, and so he gets to work right away on trying to 
uh, investigate what has happened and then bring a judgment on it. He's inherited this situation from Felix. He comes into power. He makes a trip immediately down to Jerusalem and he meets with the high priest and the council there. And he kind of, you know, he's rubbing shoulders with the who's who in Jerusalem. That's what you do when you're the Roman governing authority. You need to work with those religious powers that are there because they control the people. And so he's there trying to ascertain the truth about the situation. And they present these charges against Paul. And then they ask for a favor. They say this, the religious leaders requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem because Paul's still in Caesarea for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. This is round two. They've had this plot before. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me. And if the man has been, has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. Excuse me. I'm sure the Jewish leaders were not thrilled with this plan. They'd already been down this road. They'd already tried their hand with their ace, Tertullus, and it had not had the outcome that they wanted. But round two, off to Caesarea they go. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. And I want you to note those words, they stood around him. You know, this was uh, an intimidation tactic here. Uh, They were trying to scare the Apostle Paul. Uh, And then Paul makes his defense. Uh, Pardon me, I didn't read that. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. He's covering all his bases. I haven't done anything wrong. Now what happens next is a little bit hard to understand because Festus has declined to the Jewish people to bring Paul to Jerusalem. But now he says to Paul, Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there for these charges? Probably because Festus is realizing these issues go beyond my knowledge. I don't know Jewish law that well. So maybe he should go back to Jerusalem to those who know the law to be able to judge him there. And that's when Paul answers and he says, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself, Festus, know very well. So he's really kind of pinpointing Festus here. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. Again, he's speaking directly to Festus. And then he says, I appeal to Caesar. You know, Paul, he's making good sense here. He was in an official Roman court. And this was the place that a a verdict should have been given. There is no reason for him to be sent back to Jerusalem. And so probably he's calculating his odds here really quickly, thinking, you know what? If this is going to get to the point where a decision has to be made that I'm going to be moved, back to Jerusalem is not the direction I want to go. I'd rather go to Caesar. And so he's as as if he's saying to um, Festus at this point, if this court right here in Caesarea will not pronounce justice, then I will appeal to the Supreme Court, the highest court. I appeal to Caesar himself. And after Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Now we're not sure if Festus had to grant this request to Paul just because he'd asked for it. Um, You know, there could be other things going on here where he's uh, talking to his counsel there and they're kind of like, you know what, we're not getting anywhere with this situation. We might as well move it on to someone else. So, to Caesar you will go. Uh, We're not 100% sure, but that possibly could be the case. But you know, there's a bigger picture going on here. There is a bigger plan, and that's God's plan. I mean, God 
is the one who had the plan for Paul to go and speak both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles and that he would go to Rome. Last week, we looked at Luke 23, 11, where it says that the, this was when, when Paul had stood before the Sanhedrin and then he had to be rescued by uh, the commander because they were getting you know, ready to kill him. And, and so the Lord came and he stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The plan of God was that Paul would testify of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Rome. I mean, that's our whole theme, to the ends of the earth. Jesus had said to those disciples at the beginning of Acts, you will be my witnesses, and and this is the plan of God, and nothing can stop God's plan, right? And it's very interesting to see how all of this is playing out. I mean, there's prison and there's chains, and yet that's the very platform that God uses for the Apostle Paul to be able to share the gospel. Johnny Erickson Tata is a Christian author and speaker and an artist as well, who is paralyzed from the shoulders down. And she has been since a diving accident that she had when she was 17 years old. So she's confined to a wheelchair. And that she once said, I would rather be in this wheelchair knowing God than on my feet without him. And then she went on to say, my wheelchair was the key to seeing all this happen, especially since God's power always shows up best in weakness. I have a quote here for you to read. So here I sit, like in her wheelchair, glad that I've not been healed on the outside, but glad that I've been healed on the inside, healed from my own self-centered wants and wishes. And then she went on to say that I thank God for my wheelchair because it has become the platform for me to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. And to that I say, wow. You know, God has his plans and purposes, whether it's chains for the Apostle Paul and prison that he might have a platform to share the gospel, or whether it's a Johnny Erickson in a wheelchair to be able to share who God is. God has his plans and purposes, and they go beyond our own. This brings us to the grand finale. Paul has been before two governors, and now he's going to get his chance to be before King Agrippa and his wife Bernice. And this is scene number three, Paul's speech uh, testifying to the Roman elite and everything in Luke's books, uh, book of Acts here, uh, by way of the trials and the speeches of Paul, they've all been coming to this kind of pinnacle moment. It's a culmination of of all of Paul's teaching going to come into this last speech. And here's how the story goes. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus, Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. Now, what's happened is uh, they're friends. And King Agrippa comes to town to pay his respects, means that um, he's congratulating Festus on his new role of governor in the region. So Festus recounts for King Agrippa his course of action in his investigation, and he's concluded that the crimes that the Apostle Paul has committed are not against Rome. He says, instead, they they make... uh, disputes about their own religion and their law and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claims has come back to life. So those are kind of the religious ideas that Festus is saying I don't really know about. Now he's not an expert in Jewish law but King Agrippa having reigned in that era is quite familiar with these things. And so Festus says well he's appealed to go to Rome and I'm about to send him off to Rome um, but instead King Agrippa says, I would like to hear this man for myself. 
Okay, Festus replied, tomorrow you will hear him. But the first thing I want to do is just talk about these two for a moment because we're not familiar with them other than the fact that the name King Agrippa uh, or Herod Agrippa or King Herod has come up earlier in chapter 12 and they're related. So the story in chapter 12 was about that King Herod Agrippa I, you know, he came out and gave a speech to the people and uh, they were shouting things like, oh, this is one of the voice of a God and this kind of stuff. And he reveled in the moment rather than giving glory to God. And so uh, God took his life, right? He died. Um, that was King Agrippa I. This is his son, King Agrippa II, and they are in the family line of Herod. So often you'll hear the name Herod a lot, and it's confusing. You know, there's Herod Philip, and Herod the Tetrarch, and Herod the Great, and now we got King Herod Agrippa, and first and second. Lots of Herods. This is the great-grandson of King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great was the one who was alive when Jesus was born and tried to kill the babies in Bethlehem. That's that King Herod. This is his great-grandson. And now he's reigning, not quite in Jerusalem, a little bit north towards the Sea of Galilee in that area. This man, King Agrippa II, had his issues as well, like his grandfather, uh, great-grandfather, and his father. They all had their issues. He reigned, uh, as I said, near the Sea of Galilee. And um, he was familiar with Jewish law, and he was uh, a friend and actually related through marriage to Festus. And so they've come down to meet with Festus, and uh, Bernice is there with him. And there's a question mark over who this Bernice is. It's perceived that she is his wife, but it's known that she is actually his sister. And so this is a very dark kind of scenario, but he's having an incestuous relationship with his sister. Very sick. But this sort of thing happened in the ancient world. And there's a point to be made here about this, and that is that when God is removed, when a person does not believe in God, then what is the basis for moral behavior? And that's the situation here, is that this king and Bernice have not put their faith and trust in God. God is the basis for moral behavior. Eventually, Bernice would leave um, King Agrippa and become the mistress to Titus, who was the emperor of Rome. And the reason why I bring this out is I want you to understand the kinds of people uh, that these ones are in their positions of governing power for Rome or royalty and the circles that they kind of flow in in the Roman world. Like, these are the elite of Rome. These are the ones that hold the power. And the Apostle Paul is about to gain court with them. That God is about to use him to share the gospel with these people. Now, because this next part of the story reads really well, I'm actually going to just read through the rest of this story. Now, it's four and a half minutes long, but it's written so well, and it encompasses not only the defense of the Apostle Paul for his faith, but a gospel presentation that is so clear. I want you to hear it as if you yourself were in that courtroom, in the audience, amongst all of those elite with the military, high military officials, the nobility of Caesarea, King Agrippa, Bernice, the governor Festus, and now you have the Apostle Paul, and you're one of those ones in the crowd, and you're going to hear him speak. So, let's read this together. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us. You see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, uh, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, 
but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider it myself, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way that I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country, Tarsus, and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I, I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins <clears throat> and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of these have escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then King Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? 
Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray that God, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, there you have it. That's our story. And it is the most complete testimony that the Apostle Paul has given of his own story and an explanation of his belief in Jesus Christ and his invitation for others. And so I just want to highlight a few things. The first point I want to bring out here is the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? What a great question to ask. Because Paul had opposed this very Jesus and the idea of his resurrection. He was the one who persecuted those who believed in Jesus as the way, as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the one and only way to the Father. And you know, when Paul looked, after meeting Christ, looked into the prophets, he could see that the prophets led to Jesus. They prophets pointed to Jesus, his suffering and his death and his resurrection, that he would be the first fruits of others to come. And so he says that the Messiah would suffer. He is of the first fruits to rise from the dead. Jesus is that first. And he would bring this message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. That was Paul's role. So I ask you this question. Do you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And I think the question there is, do you think it's impossible? Do you think it's beyond the realm of possibility? Do you not understand that God who created everything can raise the dead and he will raise you to life? That he is the one who gives eternal life? That's the importance of the resurrection. The second thing is the mission that Paul has been given. I am sending you to them, the Jews and Gentiles to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. That's Paul's mission. That's what he's been called to. And what I want you to note here is there's no gray zone. There's no kind of middle ground here in, in, in salvation. It's not like, well, I'm kind of okay because, you know, I'm neither this nor that. No, you have to be this or that. You are either in darkness or you're in light. You are either serving Satan or serving God. And Paul puts it clearly in Colossians 1 where he says to those believers, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he's brought us into the kingdom of his son, the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So by saying yes to Jesus, by saying yes, I believe in him, that he is the son of God, and he died on the cross, and he rose to the life. We are taken out of the kingdom of darkness, and we are placed into the kingdom of his son. That's Paul's mission. That's what he preached. Leads to the last point, which is Paul's invitation. The centrality of the resurrection, the mission that Paul went on, and the invitation that he now gives. He says, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. This king, Agrippa, is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of these details have gone escaped from his notice because it was not done in a corner. This was a public thing. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. <laughs> you know, I find myself like just cheering and championing this and, and wanting so badly for King Agrippa to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and to say, yes, I do, Paul. Paul. 
But I think his pride gets in the way. I think maybe Paul has embarrassed him to push him to a state of vulnerability to have to declare one way or the other. And so his pride surfaces and he says, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Well, Paul says short time or long, not only for you, King Agrippa, as the most important person in this room, but every single other person that they would become as I am, except for these chains. Paul said in Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, it's with your mouth that you profess and you're saved. You know, you have to declare Jesus as your Lord. There's no middle ground. There's light, there's darkness. There's serving God or serving Satan. There's declaring with your mouth that Jesus is Lord or not. And you saw those baptisms already today in this video. And you know the story that Ella shared there where she said, you know, I I had all the answers and I grew up in a Christian home and I knew the message so well, but something was missing. And that something was a personal relationship with God. And it came when I prayed a prayer to repent of my sin and say yes to Jesus, that personal relationship began. Paul got personal with King Agrippa. Do you believe? Do you believe that the, the prophets were speaking the truth about Jesus about him being the Messiah, that he would rise from the grave, that he would be the one who gives us eternal life. Jesus once said to his disciples when he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they were saying, well, some think you're Moses or Elijah, different kinds of answers like that. And then he makes it personal. He says, who do you say that I am? You know, that's what's going to happen on the day that we stand before God. There's no third party speaking on our behalf. There's God and there's us and we're before him. And he says, what did you do with Jesus? My one and only son who came into this world, his life, a sacrifice for your sin. What did you do with Jesus? It's a very personal question and it will require a personal answer. Did you receive him? Did you reject him? Did you believe in Jesus? Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Jesus said, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So my question for you is, have you declared your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you acknowledged him? There's another baptism coming up on April 24th. And I encourage you, we have some already who witnessed that baptism that are ready to declare their faith publicly in Christ. Maybe you have not yet done so and you would like to do so. I encourage you to consider April 24th as the day that you declare your faith in Jesus Christ through baptism. But you don't have to wait till then. You can let us know If you know that you today have put your faith in Christ because you don't want to be like Agrippa who lets his pride stand in the way, but rather to say, yes, I know who Christ is and he rose from the grave and he did that for me that my sins might be forgiven. I would encourage you that you do that, that you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he's your Lord. I'd like to lead us in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the book of Acts. Thank you for these particular stories that we have looked at today that declare the truth of your gospel message, that you have not left us without a witness. And today, for the person who is wrestling with that, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would move them to a place of decision, that they would not sit in the gray zone or say it's not convenient, but rather to move toward faith and say yes to Jesus Christ. So move in their heart today, I pray by your Holy Spirit. And on April 24th, might we celebrate many who declare their faith in Christ through baptism. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. 
For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.